Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be finishing up my look at The Jesuits in North America by Francis Parkman Jr. This is the second volume of his seven-volume France and England in North America, his life's work. And we're just all plowing through it, uh, about 100 pages at a time. So um, this, this is really, I think, one of the most kind of, I don't know, I don't know what I want to say here, like filmable of these seven. If you were to make a historical drama about one of these seven volumes, uh, of course, there's a lot of drama in Montcalm and Wolf because that deals with the Seven Years' War. But this one, dealing with a small set of characters, these, you know, five, six, seven Jesuit missionaries who were the big leaders. I and mean, there was others who were involved, of course, but those were the big leaders, you know, trying to set up this mission among the Huron in the midst of persecution. And then finally, in the midst of this apocalyptic conflict between the Huron and the Iroquois, the so-called Beaver Wars, uh, ultimately ending in a refugee crisis, the destruction of the Huron Nation, the destruction of the Jesuit mission, and, and remaking forever uh, what the nature of the French Empire and the New World would be. It's a really great stuff. And whatever you might feel about missionaries or Jesuits, uh, it is a well-told story in this, this volume. Um, so what have we talked about so far? Well, we've, we've talked about the, the Indians of this region. We've talked about the Jesuits, the, the Paul Lejeune, the founding of the Huron Mission. Um, we talked about the Feast of the Dead. Uh, we looked at um, the various other Jesuit and religious activities in New France, among the tobacco nations in Quebec and the founding of Montreal. And we talked about the, the smallpox epidemic that plagued the Huron and led to the initial persecution of the Jesuit missions. All of that is, is prelude to what really is the, this cataclysmic moment, which is the, the war between the Huron and the Iroquois, particularly the Mohawk, but others. Now, these wars, uh, there are, they're usually called the Beaver Wars, and the, the classical interpretation of the Beaver Wars is that as trade increased with the Europeans, as Native American people got more tied economically to the Europeans, uh, the major commodity that they could provide to the Europeans was the beaver skins, because that was, was a demand for. And so that led to a crisis, an ecological crisis, and the decline of the beaver pelts that were available. So the Iroquois expanded, trying to take land that they could use to acquire more beaver skins. Um, um, but now that theory is um, being under attack, and I'm just reading here from a, a blog. Um, Jordan Baker, 2019. So it's a relatively new blog post. And it's called uh, The Beaver Wars and the Morning Wars, The Tale of Two Wars. So the, the main other interpretation is this, is this Morning War interpretation. And here's what this blogger says. Funny enough, the reason Beaver Wars theory makes so much sense to West, 
to modern Western readers is the exact reason why it didn't make complete sense in its proper historical context. While Dutch, French, and English colonists operate under the paradigm of mercantilism and capitalism, might well have thought of economic reasons to go to war and attempt to acquire territory, for the Native Americans of the region, for the Native nations of the region, this worldview did not exist. Though the Iroquoian and Algonquin people of the Northeast were well-known as traders and had extensive exchange networks to bring in furs from less sedentary nations that live farther north or bread for wampum for people who live closer to the sea, their economies were wholly different from the modern notion of supply and demand that fuels the beaver war argument um so then this leads into the thesis of the of the morning wars which is um the plagues that the europeans brought led to deaths of up to 90 percent of the population of some of these native american uh, communities uh, and, and so the wars that were fought we're actually about acquiring captives who could replace fallen family members. So this blogger concludes, thus as disease, war, and myriad other symptoms of European colonialism continued to wear away at Native American social structures, Iroquois nations like the Wendat and, and Haroasane increased the frequency of their morning war campaigns to offset their demographic losses. And as European colonialism only became a stronger force as the decades wore on, the warning wars continued to become more frequent and fierce. Uh, so that is, that's kind of a paradigm shift in how we look about those. But I, I kind of buy it. I, I like it when historians don't reduce things to just capitalism. Um, and that's so often done. It's like not everything is about commodities. Not everything is about just acquiring markets. You can't reduce all human experience and history to, to the economic it seems to me uh, and especially in this era where world history has been dominated by this economic narrative like like books about the east india company or about the dutch east india company or you know all kind of reduce world history to to an economic system which you know of course there's a marxist element to do wanting to do that as well but i think these days it's much more in service of neoliberal ideals about the past so anyways, take it for what it is, uh, the Morning Wars or the Beaver Wars. Actually, Parkman doesn't have an argument either way. He doesn't even make an argument for Beaver Wars here. He doesn't make an argument for uh, Morning Wars. I mean, it's a, we can read these sources that he reads and even read Parkman himself and kind of interpret it various ways. He's just interested in the drama of it, mostly, especially in this volume. So chapter 21 is called... Going right, right into the text here, chapter 21 is called Another War, which he sets up uh, with, you know, with pretty good description here, saying, The peace was broken and the hounds of war turned loose. The contagion spread through all Mohawk nations. The war songs were sung and the warriors took the path for Canada. The miserable colonists and their more miserable allies woke up from their dream of power, of peace to a reality of fear and horror. And then much of this chapter is just a description of the violence, the terror, the horror of this of this war um, so the kind of stuff that Parkman really does well at writing about I think um, chapter 22 is called the priest and the Puritan a priest and Puritan this is the only time for for a series of books called France and England in North America he doesn't say much about England uh, England is there as the ultimate victor and the antagonist of New France uh, alongside various Indian groups are antagonistic but he doesn't really care to tell us the history of, of New England, of, of England and North America. But there's pieces. There's little slices here and there where he does that. 
And that's uh, in this chapter, it's 1645 to 1651. So it's a longer story dealing with happenings in Quebec and Massachusetts and various religious perspectives between the Jesuits and the Puritans, something he really needs to set up. And I wish he had set up more systematically because it's so crucial to his argument about New France being sort of cursed by its dual reliance on, the, on Rome and the monarchy. He's got to say more about what that actually means and why being Puritans would have been a stronger foundation. He doesn't do that here. Um, but he does mention like, oh, the Puritans, unlike the Jesuits, believed in this duty to labor, to multiply, to build a, a civilization. The, the, the Jesuits are just sort of after souls. Um, you know, and they were instead focusing on these higher nature things, not the not the not the fundamentals. Um, but you know, that's he kind of gets to an argument there, but he doesn't say that much about the Puritans even in this chapter. It's just again a contrast to to the to the Jesuits. Uh, and then we get a series of chapters: twenty-three, a doomed nation; twenty-four, the Huron Church; twenty-five, Saint Marie; twenty-six, Anton Daniel. 27, Ruin of the Hurons, that all detail the war. Um, you know, the multiple angles of doom that the Indians are facing. The Iroquois, I mean the Huron in particular in this case. The Iroquois, the Europeans. And he just does a great job focusing on the desperation of the Huron. Um, this all culminates in a refugee crisis, which I think is something we need to maybe appreciate as we read this from our own historical context. Um, desperation, desperate campaigns, I mean, desperate battles just to survive. A efforts at negotiation that fail or, or are too late or too little too late. Um, it's, it's really kind of a sad story that's unfolding. And the Jesuits kind of take back uh, a back seat at this part of the story because it's not, they're not the most important part of the tale right now. It's like the world is collapsing and the Jesuits are just there as bystanders of this, of this collapse. Um, this, this is uh, where, where we got it uh, I'm looking for a little a passage here that, that speaks to this apocalyptic moment um, but anyways um, the, in the chapter of the Huron Church which is 24 we actually find how the Jesuits are able to take advantage of the collapse of the Huron society in the midst of the, these conflicts um, basically, the, this, this kind of allows the growth of the Huron Church. Um, quote, in some towns, the Christians outnumbered the heathen, and in nearly all, they formed a strong party. The mission of La Concepcion, or Ossene, was the most successful. Here there was now a church, and one of the resident Jesuits, also, as also at St. Joseph, St. Ignatius, St. Michel, and St. Jean Baptiste, for we had seen that the Huron towns were Christian with names of saints. Each church had its bell, which was sometimes hung in a neighboring tree. Every morning it rang its summons to mass, and issuing from their dwellings of bark, the converts gathered within the sacred precinct, where the bare, rude walls, fresh from the axe and saw, contrasted with the sheen of tinsel and gilding. Um, so the, there, there starts to be success among the Huron, but at a moment in which you know, this whole society is, is falling apart. So these successes won't be long-lived. But they're also, it's also suggested that they're kind of made in the context of this catastrophe. 
And then the, the final chapter really relating the events of the war, chapter 27, the ruin of the Huron, we see this, like, just the, the physical battle that is this end times battle, the desperate, desperate struggle, cottage by cottage, village by village for, for just basic survival. Um, now, all of this sort of, now, I don't know what to make of this in the sense of this morning war argument, because the heart of the morning war argument is that these wars do not try to inflict mass casualties. Yeah, some people were killed. Some people were tortured. Just that was the nature of Indian war. But it wasn't, the goal was really captives, right? But, um, you know, these were pretty bloody affairs, according to Parkman here. Quote, the desperation of one party and the fierce courage of both kept up the fight at, after the day had closed. And the scout from Saint-Marie, as he bent listening under the gloom of the pines, heard far in the night the howl of battle rising in the darkened forest. The principal chief of the Iroquois was severely wounded, and nearly a hundred of their warriors were killed on the spot. When at length their numbers and persistence fury prevailed, only their only prize was some twenty Huron warriors, spent with fatigue and faint with loss of blood. The rest lay dead around the shattered palisades, which they had so valiantly, defend, valiantly defended. Fatuity, not cowardice, was the ruin of the Huron nation. Um, but anyways, great stuff describing this, this conflict. Um, and then in chapter 28, we get sort of what we're waiting for, and that's the martyrdom of, of Berbouf and Lalament, two of the major Jesuits. We've already saw the death of, of um, what's his name, of Gouge, who was just tomahawked in the back of the, the head. Um, but the death of Berbouf, Lalament, um, these are some of these dramatic you know, moments of martyrdom. These people, some of these people were canonized. I think Berbouf became a saint, for instance, uh, you know, for this. Um, and they face their death no less bravely than do, do the Iroquois and Huron who are in this, the, the, these battles. Um, for Berbouf, uh, they even mock him. It's, it's great. Um, I mean, kind of horrible, but Good stuff if you're for just historically and for drama. A Huron, the crowd who had been a convert of the mission, but was now an Iroquois by adoption. There we go, morning wars. Called out with the malice of a renegade to pour hot water on their heads, since they had poured so much cold water on all those others. The kettle was accordingly swung, and the water boiled and poured slowly on the head of the two missionaries. We baptize you, they cried, that you may be happy in heaven, for nobody can be saved without a good baptism. Berbouf would not flinch, and in a rage they cut strips of flesh from his limbs and devoured them before his eyes. Other Huron, other renegade Hurons called out to him, You told us that the more one suffers on earth, the happier he is in heaven. We wish to make you happy. We torment you because we love you, and we ought to thank you for it. After a succession of other revolting tortures, they scalped him, and seeing him nearly dead, they laid open his breast and came into a crowd to drink the blood of so valiant an enemy, thinking to imbibe with some portion of his courage. The chiefs and Torres heart and devoured it. That's the death of Brebeuf. Um, wild, wild stuff. Um, and then, um, starting in chapter 9, we get the story, really, of a, of a refugee crisis, um, which is something I think we should appreciate as, as part of the story. Because as these villages were destroyed, as people were pushed around, you know, many of these Huron had nowhere to go. And it's not just the Huron, it's other groups too um, that were involved in this fighting. Do I mention some of these? 
Yeah, the the on Daste, for instance, were were also attacked by the Iroquois. Um, but uh, in a chapter called Sanctuary, we get a sense of the of how the priests and scattered Huron villages kind of regrouped together. But the Jesuits could do little to face uh, starvation, disease, um, and continued continued violence, and just not many of those people who fled to these various Jesuit missions survived very long. And eventually, as described in chapter 31, we're told how the Jesuits eventually abandoned the mission. It just couldn't be sustained in the, in the context of the time. So they abandoned it, and they abandoned that hope of, of converting the, the, the Huron people and establishing a Christian presence in the area. Uh, chapter 32 is called The Last of the Huron, and this also deals with this, this refugee crisis and how the Huron become a migratory people uh, in the region. They survive, sort of. So it's a bit too much to say the last of the Huron because they do sort of survive and, and live on. You know, many of them integrate into Iroquois communities and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, they are kind of wandering about the region and many of them do kind of interact more with the French as a result of that. Uh, chapter 33 is called The Destroyers. And here we just get a really close examination of the Iroquois as conqueror, uh, a discussion of the... Uh, another other beaver wars or other if we want to use the interpretation of the morning wars other of those conflicts and just the overall cost of the of the conflict for the for the Iroquois um, you know loss of fighting men um, you know reduced to 2200 warriors for the whole Iroquois uh, nation um, and it was socially disruptive for them too but um, you know, he writes here, the victors paid dear for their conquest. Their losses are so heavy that they were forced to remain for two months in Erie County to bury their dead and nurse their wounded. One enemy of their own race remained, the Andastes. And then he talks about the Andaste War as well. So, um, yeah, this is a nice chapter just though summarizing the brutality of, of the Jesuits as conquerors. Um, and kind of like that is the Roman Empire of, of the New World. I don't know if that's a fair interpretation, but uh, it's hard not to, to see that from time to time. Um, and then uh, we're pretty much done here. The final chapter at the end is only two pages long. Um, and what he says here, of course, obviously, obviously the thesis here is this Jesuit mission failed, failed in every way. Everything he was trying to, they were trying to do, they did not succeed at. Um, and why? Well, again, this is obvious. It's kind of like asking, you know, what was, you know, what was the cause of World War II? Obviously, Hitler and the Nazis caused World War II. You can talk about appeasement and other things, but at the heart of it, that's the cause. Uh, the cause of failure of the Jesuits is obvious, Parkman writes. The guns and tomahawk of the Iroquois were the ruin of their hope. Could they have curbed or converted those ferocious bands? It is less, still less than certain their dream would have become reality. Savages tamed not civilized, for that was scarcely possible, would have been distributed in communities throughout the lakes Values of the Great Lakes in the Mississippi, ruled by priests in the interest of Catholicity and France. Habits of agriculture would have developed. So this is Parkman sort of dreaming. What could have been, had the Jesuits been successful, it would have been creating a French allies, agricultural communities, quote-unquote civilization. So, you know, that's just kind of racist nonsense. Just throw that 
away. Um, but he does say something interesting here that gets to his overall thesis. Um, True to her far-reaching and adventurous genius, she would have occupied the West with traders, settlers, and garrisons and cut up the virgin wilderness into fiefs, while as yet the colonies of England were but a weak and broken line along the shore of the Atlantic. And when at last a great conflict came, England and liberty would have been confronted not by a depleted antagonist, but feebly from the exhausted but feebly from the exhaustion of a starved and persecuted infancy, but from an auth uh, athletic champion and the principles of Richelieu and Loyola. Um, so then he kind of says, well, the Iroquois in their own way weaken New France and, and become in a weird way a champion of, of liberty, by liberty here meaning the English colonist colonies. Um, you know, what does he say here? Uh, the contest on this continent between liberty and absolutism was never doubtful, but the triumph of one would have been dearly bought and the downfall of the other incomplete. Populations formed in the ideals and habits of the feudal monarchy and controlled by a hierarchy profoundly hostile to freedom of thought would have remained a hindrance to a stumble or a stumbling block in the way of the majestic experiment which America is in the field. Um, so obviously we have to deal with that because that's his thesis and that's Parkman's argument. Um, you know, whether the Jesuits ever had that potential to remake Canada, whether or not the French didn't do that anyways, despite the failure of the Jesuits, you know, these are bigger questions that I, I'm not really capable of answering. But uh, nevertheless, this is Parkman's view, that the failure of the Jesuits limited the reach of New France, limited how deeply it could in, in, in invest itself in Native American society, and therefore made New France weaker when the ultimate conflict with, with England comes in the 18th century. So that is my thoughts on the Jesuits in North America in the 17th century. Next, uh, the next volume is called La Salle and the Discovery of the Great West. Originally, it was called The Discovery of the Great West uh, in, when it was published in 1869. And then he revised it a decade later into La Salle and the Discovery of the Great West. So our hero here is, is, is Cavalier de La Salle. Um, and he is going to be crucial in the exploration of the Mississippi, uh, going as far as Texas. Um, and basically, it's a story of his life and some of the other people around him, uh, such as uh, Marquette, uh, Frontenac. Frontenac's going to be an important figure because he's the main focus of, of volume set five, volume five of this book. Um, but it's going to focus on LaSalle, it's going to focus on Wisconsin, the Mississippi, the Illinois, the Ohio, Texas, um, and then the Great West and the French presence there. So this is like a, this set mostly after, it's pretty much all, it's all set after the, the Iroquois destroy the Huron and after the Jesuit missions fail. So it's kind of like also a, a shift away from maybe a religiously driven ex, uh, settlement to a more mercantile commercial type of settlement under LaSalle. Um, so, but still feudalism in, in Parkman's view. So in the next three episodes, I'll look at volume three of France and England in North America, LaSalle and the Discovery of the Great West. I'm looking forward to that one. It's got a lot, a lot of uh, nice drama as well. Maybe not as epic as the Jesuits in North America, but it's, 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 it's got its... 
it's got this contribution to make. So, um, and it's important for his overall plot, his overall story. So anyways, if you have any thoughts on the Jesuits in North America, um, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And yeah, that'll be it for now. I will see you next time when I begin looking at LaSalle and the Discovery of the Great West. Adorable, Jésus est né, Jésus sera 